0: My guest today is Professor Brian Vandell, who is a professor of the psychology department of Stanford University. He's also a member of electrical engineering, ophthalmology, and graduate school of education. He's the founding director of Stanford Center for Cognitive and Neurobiological Imaging, and he founded the Stanford Center for Image Systems Engineering Program. Professor Vandell's research centers on imaging science and technology, spanning neuroscience measurements of the visual cortex, and reading development to simulation and design of imaging systems, welcome, Brian
1: Thanks thanks for the invitation Gil.
0: Um, i uh, you know I was a bit like a kid in a candy candy store, Brian, looking at all your papers. Um, i guess uh, I guess you're working the graduate students pretty hard at Stanford these days
1: uh, yeah we Stanford's in a confusing moment with the campus being completely shut down and. <laughs> we're all kind of wanderers
0: out here. Yeah, yeah. I want to start with one of your recent papers. Um, It's entitled The Human Connectome Project for Disordered Emotional States, uh, in which uh, you say, through the Human Connectome Project, HCP, our understanding of the functional connectome of the healthy brain has been dramatically accelerated. uh, Given the pressing public health need, we must increase our understanding of how connectome dysfunctions give rise to disordered mental states. Could you talk a bit about that paper? Yeah, I'd
1: I'd be glad to. Thanks. Actually, that whole project, although I I participate in it actively, it's, I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Lee Williams. She's a um, terrific psychiatrist. Yeah. and uh, Has the the reason why I'm involved is because uh, I have a certain skills in being able to use magnetic resonance imaging for measuring and quantifying uh, individual human brains. Yeah, And I've always been admiring people like Lee who uh, are working on this just huge problem of um, people being emotionally stressed. I think these days all of us can relate to mm-hmm. the kinds of stressors that are Uh, really roiling our country but even in the best of times um, the greatest uh, global disease burden in western countries i shouldn't have said global but the greatest disease burden in western countries for people from about 20 till the ages of 60 or so uh, are really um, uh, anxiety depression mood disorders and so forth and uh it's not until later that um cancer and heart disease start to dominate. Right, right. uh, So the goal of Lee's project and the way I I try to help is, you know, you want to be able to look at a single person (laughs) and measurements for that person of what's going well and what's not going well, either with their brain structure or function
0: it's sort of sort of looking at the uh, you know I was surprised Brian, to look at the numbers here, so it says mental disorders arising from high levels of negative emotion or from the loss of positive emotional experience affect over four hundred million people yeah. globally so 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 the idea here is to look at sort of the wiring of the brain and then have some hypotheses
1: that 's right and 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 also. It's not likely to be the case at some something like this that everybody who has problems are the same, yeah, so the idea that you take a bunch of people and average them mm-hmm. and try to see what's what's happening is you know has proven not to be a good not to be a good approach, so maybe you or you know since anyone who's listening might have heard of this notion of kind of precision healthcare. yeah. And that's the idea that you would learn about this particular person. Sometimes it's through genomics, but sometimes it can be through brain imaging. Right. And see, is there something you know about this particular person? We'd like to be able to look at a person and say, you know, one of the things lead uses it's, there are a few interventions that can help some behavioral and cognitive, and some pharmaceutical. And the amount of time. That it can take to get to a helpful solution for somebody uh, can be quite long and it can be quite an unpleasant journey mm-hmm. and so shortening that time in the cases we can help is one important aspect of what um, Lee and our team is trying to achieve
0: yeah yeah so this is through MRI scanning right so uh, so the, the the brain has a template. But like you say, each individual is different, yes. uh, but but you are sort of uh, looking for patterns in, the, in, the, in those scans that might uh, tell us something?
1: That's exactly right. The, the other thing you should know, and not, not, not everybody would know this about magnetic resonance. Yeah. It, you know, it is one instrument Uh, In other words, it's a big magnet and there's a bunch of electronics and there's a bunch of um, software that we use to analyze the data, but it can be used in an extremely general way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't only measure one thing and you can control the instrument to measure, for example, uh, the white matter pathways. These are the long axons that connect different parts of your brain. Yeah. Or you can use it to measure the gray matter of your brain, which is where the neurons, the cell bodies are located. How thick is it? What's their density? Or you can use it to measure um, indicators of functional activity. You know, what is responding, which neurons are responding mm-hmm. during a task. So it can be used in many, many different ways. And uh, that's why this project has so many authors and it's a really big challenge. We're trying to use MR in a variety of different ways to see which signals might be the most helpful for shortening the diagnostic time.
0: Are we um, are we generally successful? Um,
1: I would say there has not been, uh, you know, I, I'm very optimistic yeah, yeah. <laughs> next, about the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough that I'm not going to you know, be doing the last 20 years of the, the next, all well, the next 20 years of this. But it, the the physics of this is, is getting much better. The ability to handle large data sets at scale is getting much better. Um, I look at the younger scientists and they're just a lot smarter than I was. And I am very hopeful that we will come to new ideas and but I, I would say at this point, there have not been real breakthroughs in diagnosing um, mood disorders via um, uh, standardizable uh, MR techniques or other techniques, either EEG. But I would say the number of companies that have started up in this space and the number of you know hopeful little papers you know, is, 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 you know gives you a sense that we might be making some progress. But I can't really say that um, I'm confident in any of them at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, interesting. I mean, on one hand, you can you can't really understand how a single cell could become a human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the other hand, you know, you say, well, there is a template, a design template. How many variations could you have? And I guess the answer is infinite. Um, and, and hence, um, it's it's a really, really complex problem to solve. But if you can solve it, you know, in the healthcare context, Brian, as you know, uh, you know, we, we treat uh, mental health almost separately from physical health. And there is, you know, really good uh, data that shows that th- there is a huge connection between mental health and physical health. So any diagnostic modalities that could surface these things earlier and earlier intervention in the mental health arena uh, could be uh, could have a huge economic impact on the healthcare system
1: that's 100 percent true i really agree with that in in all parts of what you said that uh you know even the mechanisms from what we consider physical health meaning things like a good vascular system good posture good you know getting out and walking and um, mental health are Quite significant, those are some of the things we know best. By the way, you know, th- these aren't magical effects. Right. So the, the thing, when you look at a brain, um, so in, in neurosurgery, the brain is just filled with blood and vasculature. Mm. And, and uh, when you walk and you keep your heart pumping and your vasculature is in good health, that helps your brain health. And we don't have the details of how that works, but there's no doubt that a good blood supply, oxygenated, your heart pumping, just matters enormously for brain health.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. I want to jump into another one which is related, uh, Brian. So this is entitled Biological Development of Reading Circuits, Current Opinions in Neurobiology. Uh, where you, you mentioned uh, brain computations operate over a range of temporal and spatial scales. Understanding action potentials and synaptic efficacy is essential for understanding certain aspects of performance. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so let me give a shout out. That, that, that particular collection of papers, I think that's a review. Um, there's a student of mine Jason Yateman, who went off to Seattle for a while as a professor there, and he's now back at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. And he and Aviv Mezer, who's at the um, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and I were really curious about how come some kids learn to read and some kids don't. And uh, I have to say that the first thing we learned is we started looking at that field, was for the vast majority of kids who have problems reading, learning to read in the US, you could take care of a lot of those problems if they just got a good breakfast mm. and felt safe in their neighborhoods. And uh, it was just, you know, we just improved the general conditions of, of their lives. Yeah. But, but beyond that, and these are the ones we study, yeah. there, there are kids who just, you know, they're motivated, they're smart in many other ways, uh, and they just can't uh, pick up the tricks that it takes, particularly to learn to read English, which is a very tough, tough language in, mm-hmm. in its own way. And um, the uh, so we started looking at that using magnetic resonance imaging with the same idea: could we do something helpful so that we could look at one kid? Same principles we spoke a moment ago. Yeah, could, could you look at one kid and say? Oh, you know, this kid, he's gonna he's gonna be okay in six months. So you tell the parents, you know, just keep keep working, keep her, keep her doing her homework, and it'll it'll snap in a few months from now. And but this other kid say, Yeah, you know, we've seen this pattern. And it could be like some of these very famous and yet successful cases. Maybe the most famous these days is Charles Schwab, who's you know, very successful. Yeah. <laughs> and we would like to be able to tell the parent, well, you know, in this case, you're really going to have to get them educated in a different way. Mm -hmm. So that particular point that you spoke to, when we got, when we got into it, we, we found a couple of counter, you know, just forces in the neuroscience field that we felt we needed to address. And one of them was that neuroscience as a field has a massive focus on single cells and the synapse. And, you know, when you measure MR, you don't measure single cells. The spatial resolution for magnetic resonance is, uh, oh, you know, you're pretty good if you pick up a cubic millimeter of the brain. Oh, wow. Which is going to have about 50,000 cells. And amongst all these, you know, high-end neuro-electrophysiologists and basic scientists, you know, being at the synapse, and there could be, you know, 5,000 synapses on a single cell. Mm. That's where the cool people are. Mm. Well, that's, you know, if, if you're a computational person as I, as I am, you know, no single synapse is really critical for computation. It can be critical for drugs. yeah. And a lot of this comes from big pharma. So, you know, man, we gotta control the synapse because that's where we can deliver drugs to and have an impact. But for understanding what the brain is doing, sometimes you want to be at a different spatial resolution. You want to see different parts of the brain, the back to the front of the brain. You want to see the pathways that connect it. And so that paper was one of our attempts to um, express the view that there's real meaningful work to be done at the coarser spatial resolutions.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, Brian. So, you know, you mentioned sort of the initial conditions that the kid is in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has a huge impact, right? You say his cell development, growth and pruning of dendritic arbors and axons, the stat- status of the glia. So really at that scale, not, not at the cellular level, but at the structural level, yes. um, if you don't have the right initial conditions, you... You, you know you are kind of designing in a sort of a different system, almost sounds to me right That's right
1: yeah and and in fact, you know you raised a, a let me add a, a final word for everybody. Um, most people know the word neuron, and it's the kind of computational element in the brain um, and but over the last i don't know maybe not more than twenty years. Uh, led by a quite remarkable scientist who was here at Stanford, Ben Barris. Yeah. Um, and uh, more recently, somebody who oh, I don't know well, I've met her, but uh, whose work is just fantastic, uh, Michelle Manji mm-hmm. at Stanford, uh, the, and others around the, around the globe, the importance of a completely different cell type, of which there are almost as many in the brain, uh, these glial cells. Yeah. Uh, has risen in terms of our understanding of how important they are for the development of the brain, for healthy signaling in the brain. And again, our that the ability to distinguish the health of the neurons from the glial cells, from the, as we were saying before, the vasculature, whether the blood supply is getting there. Right. If you care about a kid's health and whether a kid is going to develop and learn to read, you want to be able to assess all of those systems as well as the neurotransmitters and the the molecules. So, um, you know, a little, a a little bit of all of us not standing on one another's toes, but all of us sort of helping one another see the different parts is something I, I, I think it could happen. I think is maybe starting to happen. And, um, uh, I, I hope we all participate in working together at that and seeing the global, the global picture, not just the picture
0: from inside the synapse. Yeah. Yeah. And even at the MRI scale, so cognition, and you mentioned this before, cognition and white matter tissue properties is an, is one example of how these factors may set important limits on both cognition and affect. Yes. So, yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, I was just
1: going to say, if you don't have the right connections, between different parts of the brain, yeah. and that's the job of the white matter. Uh, if you don't have the right connections across large parts of the brain, things won't go well. So yes, that's really important. Limits.
0: Yeah, and 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 what's your sense? I don't know much about this, but um, you know, once once the brain is set in that in that context, uh, can you really intervene and make it better?
1: Yeah. So that's a a you know very important question to and sometimes you'll you'll hear the phrase brain plasticity yeah in that regard and uh one of the big topics in neuroscience in addition to developmental plasticity um is the question of brain plasticity in the adult right and the the um It was a very heated area, Mm -hmm. Uh, so in the early days, so there's a kind of a pair of very famous Nobel laureates, uh, Hubel and Wiesel, who did many studies of brain development and came to the conclusion that there was an early stage of plasticity, which we all marvel at, right? We watch our kids grow and we understand that that, that's hugely important. And kids are remarkable what they can recover from and can't. And then they argue that there was a critical period after which uh, there wasn't much plasticity left. Mm -hmm. And there was then a big pushback against this, that no, the brain is plastic. And there's a period of time, I don't know, Gil, if you remember this, but uh, the public radio stations used to have ad after ad after ad about brain plasticity. Yeah, yeah. That so would help you know help you drive forever and live forever.
0: <laughs> right, right, yeah.
1: Uh, but that the extent of plasticity in the um, adult brain is far less than the amount of plasticity in the developing brain, mm-hmm. and that seems to me pretty clear. Uh, there are still people who might maybe would argue with me about it, but it's I, I think that the limits are. Are pretty obvious. And so the question now is, well, when there is damage, is there something you could do to reintroduce plasticity, right? Either in the form of a behavioral intervention that would release whatever is blocking your brain from regrowing, or in the form of some, it could be pharmacological or electrical stimulation. And this matters for cases like stroke patients who've had parts of their brain destroyed. It's open to technologies like stem cell therapies where you would try to uh, reproduce and regrow and reinsert things. There's other kinds of um, ways to grow bits of brain called um, human brain organoids that people are uh, trying, trying to achieve. So in any event, there's a lot of lost plasticity and there's a lot of interest in being able to literally repair the human brain. And it's um, wonderful topics and very, very, very early stages on this.
0: Yeah. And, um, the you know, uh, this is not the paper, but I know that you have done some work in this area too. So uh, certain diseases like Alzheimer's, for example, uh, one question would be, you know, is it really, uh, really destroying any, you know, any remaining plasticity in the brain as well? Right. Um, what What is the latest thinking around that? You know, the
1: Alzheimer's, um, work it, it, so that, that that's called, uh, the field, of, it's within the broader field of neurodegeneration Yeah, and that's a kind of brain plasticity, but it's the kind that you don't like. Wow. So the brain is changing, but it's changing in a way that's, that's not helpful. And so reversing that change, putting on brain plasticity, but undoing the effects of, uh, the destruction from Alzheimer's in which this, you know, synapses are lost and communication is lost and so forth is, is important. And you raising, so people have now done many fundamental important experiments in animal models mm-hmm. to reverse the effects of the plaques and tangles and the, the uh, degeneration and to try to bring back actually performance levels in, in these animal models. Um, but so now you've taken us into an area where uh, when you succeed in reversing something that's seen, and, and model is important, it's, it's a kind of a model system. It's not the same as the human brain. Yeah. Mouse, the mouse brain is one three thousandth the size of the human brain. Right. And so it's going to have all kinds of differences. And it's kind of one of the tragedies of our you know, current standing in, uh, in the neuroscience of this, that none of the it's interventions that have been successful in the mouse have effectively translated into human. Yeah. And, and that's why, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate personally about trying to just do better with the technologies like MR that we can both measure and potentially even intervene in human directly so that we might have a better model, not have the mouse model of human, but maybe have some cases in which we have human models of human. And uh, anyway, it's been a, it's, that's been one of the hugely important and also frustrating um, aspects of uh, what we look at, so at Stanford, we have a human, we we have a a, a very broad, not just human, but a very broad uh, neurosciences institute. Yeah. Uh, for, and uh, Clara Wu and Joe Tsai donated, and it's called the Wu Tsai uh, Neurosciences mm-hmm. Institute. And the ability, mood disorders are important, as I mentioned, Lee's work and a number of others, but the Alzheimer's uh, part of that is also very important. She, these are huge financial burdens on society. And... More than that, it's not
0: just the money. It's, you know, saving yeah. so well. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the, the space you're in, Brian, you know, um, at the intersection of computer science and neuroscience, uh, you know, I, I sometimes feel like as we make progress on the computer science end, uh, <laughs> the brain becomes more and more enigmatic, right? You know, it's almost like uh, God has a sense of humor, you know. Uh, y- you get teased that you found something, but then... You find that you know there's there's a thousand other things you need to you need to figure out. That's interesting. Could you say, I, I, could you say a little bit more about that? I find I I kind of get what your point, but say a little more about. That yeah, yeah, me. yeah. Well, so so what what I was saying, uh, Brian, is you know the computer science we are making quite a bit of you know sort of I would call it mechanistic programmatic advances. Um, mm-hmm. So you know the, the the latest thing in terms of deep neural networks, we know that the brain doesn't learn that way but you're making great progress in neural networks and so on right yes but when you go back and look in the brain um you know it seems like we find more and more things that we don't understand
2: right
0: Uh, right you know we we, at no point we can say we have a better handle of this and we know this is how it's functioning uh, it seems like you know we have some component level understanding, but it's not really progressing to more of a holistic uh, understanding. Yeah,
1: no, that's important.
0: And and I wonder, you know, so we take this reductionist approach, right, uh, in science, and I often wondered if that is probably the wrong approach to the brain. And and you kind of you kind of hinted on that as well that it's the structural aspects of the brain that is that is really driving it. It's not necessarily the cells, you know, the cellular type understanding.
1: Yeah, I, I, I hate to, so I, I am quite fond of and count amongst many of my close friends, people who really do important work on studying cells and their behavior and I wouldn't, you know, I'm sure you also, neither yeah. of us want to diminish that. I just felt that the balance had gotten to the point where people would say, you know, if, if you were studying the system, uh, you weren't a real scientist. You were just, you know, joking around <laughs> that you, understand that you needed to know the genes and the molecule. Right. And I, I thought that had shifted a little far. And I would never argue that you don't want to know the genes or if you could, you know, that of course you would want to know that. But, you know, rebalancing a little bit so that we keep the whole human as part of the measurement system. And, you know, they're, they're, it's miraculous what you can do with genetic manipulations, these CRISPR technologies, optogenetics. And so these are miraculous things. Yeah. But they're not quite this. And they're a great complement. If we keep the patient or the developing child who's learning to read, we need to keep them in the lab. We can't just say, oh, it's all going to be about these cells
0: that we get out of a mouse. Right, right. Yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to jump to another area, Brian. So you are doing a lot of work in uh, imaging systems, camera designs uh, related to artificial intelligence. Uh, in one of the papers, you, you talk about a digital camera and fluorescent signals uh, as sort of the first application in oral cancer screening. Could you, could you talk a bit about that?
1: sure um so, so you know for me mr is one of the imaging modalities but i as you say i've been fortunate over a kind of long career to be able to work on um, many forms of optics and digital image sensors and so forth and uh you know when i see a medical application uh, it kind of brings it all together for me and fluorescence is one of the kind of fundamental Properties of healthy certain kinds of healthy cells,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so measuring fluorescence can be hard. And so that, that for me, right, that's my job: try to find something that's a little hard to do, yeah, make it easy.
2: Yeah. And
1: so uh, one day, I actually so this is a, a project that was actually kicked off by my son, who's an oral surgeon in uh, Texas. Yeah, and he was seeing uh, my my wife and I were looking at a particular at a particular device. He said, "You know, if you could take a picture of somebody's tongue, mm-hmm. and, and I had never thought about tongues. If you take a picture of somebody's tongue and see the fluorescence coming out of it, and I'll define fluorescence in a moment. Yeah, then um, you could really get an early diagnosis diagnosis of cancer in the tongue. Right." And I had never heard of anything like that. And he said, but, you know, and that's not that big a deal here in the U.S., but it's, you know, matters. Sure. And then we came to learn that tongue cancer in China and India is a massive problem because of smoking and perhaps
0: other factors. It's really... Yeah, um, smoking plus the alcohol, I think, has a that huge negative effect, yeah.
1: So... Um, Designing a camera, so I a lot of my world is about software and software simulation and designing cameras and devices uh, using, using software. And so we started to think about how you would design a, the, the lighting system, the filters that would receive the light, the sensor, the processing for a camera that you could just poke into somebody's mouth briefly and take a picture and get a sense of where the cells were fluorescing or not. And fluorescing means that you put in, uh, in, pure, in, in one sense of fluorescence, it means you put in light, let's say blue light, but when it gets comes back, it's red. And normally, when you put, you know, shine blue light on something, what's reflected back to you is blue light. Right. But in many cases, um, the fluorescing cases, you put in the blue light, and there's a chemical process that arises, a physical process that arises in the cells that changes the wavelength of the light mm-hmm. and it returned the lower energy state. And so the short wavelengths will end up being longer wavelengths, which are lower energy. So how you would design the filters and the sensors and the cameras and the processing for that, that, that's the kind of thing we do for fun. And building a camera like that was something we were interested in. And I had another former student, I want to shout out to Feng Xiao, who's um, started a company called Fung Yun Vision in um, Beijing. Yeah. And Fung uh, said, well, he would be thrilled to go and just build us test equipment. Because uh, if we could make some progress on this, he felt it would really help uh, with oral cancer in China. And yeah. so that's what we've been doing. He's been building little prototypes for us. We have uh, kids in uh, California and a kid in London and some people in China. And we're all passing around software and building device taking test measurements and starting to write papers and 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 we're learning about the literature yeah, it's kind of late in life but uh, there's a big i'm reading fantastic work from people out of uh, houston and dallas who've done some early experiments on this and we have a prototype camera up now we're taking pictures and we're trying to see if we can make it more and more robust and then if it works out, we're going to put it back in the hands of um, a colleague here who's an oral surgeon and also in the hands of our son who's uh, in um, Texas and see if we can't move it into the clinic. And, yeah. and we're not very far along, but, but we, we have some early preliminary measurements that look
0: promising. Yeah, this is, this is very interesting, Brian. So this, uh, So you're not really talking about any sort of deep learning uh, needs here, you you actually can write down some heuristics uh, basically saying, if I get this type of fluorescence, then I can, I have this probability that that tissue is healthy or otherwise, right? You don't, you don't really need to um, use any AI techniques even.
1: You know, it, it's, what you're raising is that's very interesting and important to me. Certain cases, you know, you just, have the algorithm and and I would not say that we're sure yet that we will be, how we will be able to do this. So, you know, I would be happy to talk to somebody like you, for example. Um, I I don't know whether the spatial pattern of the fluorescence that comes off of the tongue, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's all in one side versus kind of little dots spread across the tongue, does that matter for health and diagnosis? Well, I don't really know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, it could be, you know, when when you and I spoke earlier, we, we spoke to one another about collecting enough, collecting and organizing enough data. Yeah. So and look at these things. And we're keen to work with people like you and, and others who are skilled in uh, automating the search for signals through machine learning. Right uh, To answer
0: that question. Yeah, and, and that is one of the other things that you're pursuing, Brian. So you have you have a company flywheel, flywheel.io and one of the obviously one of the issues in in machine learning, uh, multiple issues and one of them is obviously related to data. Um, you know how do we organize uh, how do we collect and organize data in a systematic way so that experiments run on that data, could be reproduced um, by anybody who is who is uh, using that data, um, and, and that's a very important aspect because as machine learning and deep learning really kick into mainstream, it's really easy, <laughs> I would say, to build models, uh, given a bunch of data. It's not that easy to actually reproduce those results in a robust fashion, right? That is what uh, that's what you're you're really focused on at Flywheel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, yes, so, so let me say it came about because when I started, I guess it's been about 10 years when we were fortunate to get our first magnet and start the MR Center. and We knew we needed to take care of the data. Because I mean, yeah. when, when you first wanted to check for one of these things, you realize, wow, that's an expensive instrument. i better not mess up with managing the data that comes off of it. We have about 40 different labs at Stanford who Uh, you know, use the instrument. Mm -hmm. And so we worried a lot about stewarding the data, making sure that we didn't lose it, that it was properly recorded, that it would be easy for people to share if they wanted to share. And these these weren't going to be my data. They were going to be data that, you know, different labs would acquire. And, you know, they weren't always ready to give it away right away. They wanted time to process it and work on it. But we knew there'd come a point where they'd be done and it should be easy for them to share and to compute, uh, try things with with other with colleagues in electrical engineering, computer science, applied math uh, with these data. So yeah, we built a, um, you would have thought, by the way, I don't, I don't mean to throw Stanford under the bus here, but <laughs> you would have thought at a place like Stanford, when you buy a big expensive instrument, that uh, they it would be an instinct for them to say, you know, yeah, whenever we put up one of these centers, uh, we always have to have a data management plan. Mm. And Stanford was actually really great about helping us choose the color of the paint and the carpets. <laughs> and the but then when it came to data management, it was one big shrug. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the, the, my buddies who were building this thing with me, particularly Bob Dockery, who's now at a, another company called MindStrong, and Gunnar Schaefer, who joined me at Flywheel, um, you know, we thought we really had to build a data management system. Uh, we actually tried to get help from our colleagues in the computer science department. That was another interesting experience because I went over there and you know, I'd been around long enough and they would take meetings with me but they'd all look at me and say, well, that's just too easy. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's not a hard problem in computer science. And computer science, you know, we are doing these super advanced things. Yeah. So we in between the, you know, just could buy it off the shelf at, from Dell or something and uh, something that computer science people would work on. So we built our own system for data and computational management. And um, it seems to have fallen into a sweet spot. And I'm glad you find, you see the value in it. And many yeah. people uh, at this point flywheels are doing okay. But for us, the main point is the, being able to share the work and letting other people check your work so you know a lot of stuff is hard and we all benefit if when you publish something somebody else can come in and check that you did it the right way yeah and then hold on it and that really is the premise of that company
0: yeah yeah the other side of data as you know brian is you know when i talk to my clients sometimes they say well we have to collect all the data first and then we'll figure out you know how to use it and Uh, oftentimes uh, you spend years collecting the data and by the time you come to use it, the data has already changed. And so so the the real, you know, uh, capabilities in the area of uh, machine learning and deep learning is really uh, the ability to systematically discard data. Uh, And this is not something people really, really think about i think you know the brain is a good example of it uh, brain mm. is a very efficient discarder of data uh, and and focus on what is really needed um but our you know kind of designs in the ai arena uh, basically is looking for all the data mm. in, in some way right um but the data is now if the data is organized in a in a form that is standardized uh, across different modalities, mm-hmm. then you will be able to see what is most useful much faster, right?
1: I agree with you. Yeah, I have to say that. The, I think the reason there, there are two things that we've learned so far, and I hope the the story will continue for, uh, We we have a ways to go, but but there are two pretty fundamental things we learned that build on your comments here. Yeah, the first is. It, Don't let the data out of your hands when you get it from the instrument. (laughs) You you were saying how hard it is to go get the data. Well, you know, sitting at the instrument and the first thing that the instrument does is put the data in a database. Right. You're okay, Uh, And and for many years and still many people don't appreciate this. If you say you take the data and you let, let it go out to the 40 different labs and then you say, well, could I have it back, please? (laughs) So by putting the acquisition of the data right in the instrument itself, which we could do uh, on our scanners, Mm -hmm. that was very helpful. We now have this, you know, just in our one center, we have a massive data set, but uh, we're now managing. I, I thought it was massive. But I, I would say, I don't know if I'm allowed to, I, I may not be allowed to name the company, but we're working with a, a very large pharmaceutical company. Yeah, and They have millions of data sets. I was impressed that we had many tens of thousands. <laughs> but these, these companies at global scale have millions of data sets yeah. and they're not organizing them well.
2: Oh yeah. yeah. So
1: getting the data in and organized is, um, you know, key. And we're glad to have this one partner who recognizes that and, and hopefully go, other, go others. The, the other thing that, that we learned is that in each field, so we're particularly comfortable because of my background in medical imaging, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I don't really think that exactly the same format and how we store it and the metadata about it and so forth will work exactly the same way in all fields, even other p- types of medical imaging. So I'll say, you know, I do a lot of MR, PET, EEG, things of this sort of ultrasound. But um, when you go to digital pathology, it's a slightly different culture. Right. So the other thing we've learned is that when you build these things, you have to be aware of the culture of the uh, enterprise. If it's pharma, Versus um, versus medical instrument makers who make wearable watches, right? <laughs> it's different organizations, and um, we need to keep learning what works properly in the, the do, domain-specific organization. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's been a very. That's th- thanks. Let me talk about that a bit. It's been very. Uh, I, that, I I do think you're right. You've said this a number of times. That the acquisition and organization of the data is yes. really important, and and that's un, often undervalued by scientists and engineers. So anyway,
0: thanks. For it's that. often undervalued, and I think you you talk about this in one of the papers, Brian, which is, uh, you know, if you if you are uh, embarking on a process, take a lot of time to think through the data that that you want, right. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you'll be cycling through this process over and over again, trying to make slight refinement to the data capture process. Yes. And uh, that is that is really costly. I, I saw one other thing that, uh, that I thought was also very interesting, Brian. So this uh, neural network generalization, the impact of camera parameters, another paper that you have, where you say uh, images coming out of uh, different cameras from a from a neural network, this is convolutional neural network. From a generalization perspective, it's roughly the same as the images. The generalization you get from images uh, in ray traced multispectral synthetic images. What what exactly are those? Yeah,
1: um, the, the it's very hard to build a camera. It's expensive. Yeah, to build a camera and run it out and test it, and so. Uh, just like it's hard to build an MR scanner and test it. So so, uh, in imaging, there's a little bit of a movement that some of us are trying to get going to use simulations, Mm -hmm. physically accurate simulations of the devices so that we can build, say, complex driving scenes and then theoretical cameras in simulation drive them for a couple of million miles without having to actually build a novel camera, oh. and put it out on the road and drive it for a million miles. Uh, Elon Musk can do that. But, <laughs> yeah. and, and so uh, that particular paper was asking, how close are we getting? Uh, right. Are Our simulations, uh, which the, the technology for getting physically accurate images that you can use as inputs to physically accurate cameras, is it would be called multispectral because it's many different wavelengths of light. Uh, ray tracing is the right um, technology for getting physically accurate measurements. Yeah. So can you do multi-spectral ray tracing through optics onto sensors and train neural networks based on that so that you can do it all inside of uh, Google Cloud or on Azure or Amazon or something and, and get a pretty decent assessment of how well it'll work before you put it on somebody's car.
0: Right. And and uh, at least in the first few attempts, they, they, they do pretty well?
1: There's a little growing and yeah, so yeah, I would say right now, so so the thing, we didn't know how to measure it exactly, right? Because we weren't taking, I'm kind of a practical, practically oriented, and I couldn't say, well, okay, this is how it's simulated. Now let's get out there and drive for a couple of years. Right. And that was not available to me. <laughs> so what we could do was say, well, people had sh- kindly shared large data sets. That community is pretty great about sharing data sets, the machine learning community. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so we could say, well, suppose we trained on the data set from Berkeley and then uh, we tested on the data set from Germany uh, or we trained on the one from Germany and tested on the one from China. Uh, how, mu- how well would they generalize? Yeah. And what we found was that the generalization between datasets people had posted and were acquired was no better than the generalization between the synthetic oh, okay. data that we would build. In fact, the synthetic dataset you know could could predict some of the real ones better. It, it was it was right in the mix. So that gave encouragement that we should keep going.
0: So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exciting. So, in conclusion, Brian, you know, if you look forward five years. Um, where do you think we will make the most advancement? Um, you know, if you think about cognitive and neurobiological imaging, some of the things that we talked about today, where do you think there are, where, where, what is the area that you're most excited about? Let me ask it that way.
1: Uh, I'm on this um, mission. So let, let me say my partner in this is, um, in the neurosciences is the, um, is the director of uh, Clara Wu and Jote uh Neurosciences Institute at Stanford. The director is a guy named Bill Newsom. Yeah. And we were fortunate enough to be able to put up a building uh, uh, to house the uh, Neurosciences Institute. And I'm going to tell you what we bet on. Yeah. And this is a dangerous bet. But <laughs> people were really annoyed with us, but um, we stuck it out. Uh, in the in the design of the building, we implemented two floors. Uh, we we kind of literally merged two two floors, cut them out, yeah. put them in the hardware of places where theorists would sit and think. Yeah. And uh, normally, when you build a building at Stanford for neuroscience or almost any biology, it's one lab bench to the next. It's right. uh, you know. Uh, hoods for chemical for maintaining chemicals and places for animals and so forth um but bill and i with you know backing of others uh got uh, space built into the building that's going to be really hard to reconfigure for anything other than theoretical neuroscience right and uh our feeling is that um The number of experiments is infinite. And if we want to make more rapid progress, we're going to need people like you uh, (laughs) or other theorists who sit and think about the problem and develop theories and develop models to guide uh, both the massive new data sets that are being acquired and what we should acquire next. So that's the bet we made. I don't know if it's a five-year bet or a 50-year bet, but the bet we made is, and we, you know, done our best to try to protect the space, so that there will always be a place to think about how we should organize the data, rather than, you know, massively go and collect a lot of data. Some people are annoyed
0: with us for it. Some people applaud us for it. <laughs> uh, I hope it works out. Yeah, that goes back to your comment about culture, right? So at the end of the day, progress is. Really, very highly correlated with culture. You know, (laughs) I
1: really have to say thanks for saying that because you remind me one of the things that made us go for this was when we did this institute. Bill and I, and a couple of others, had I don't know about 20 different dinners with people from all around campus groups of 10, 20 uh, engineers or people from the ed school, or you know, just trying to figure out what we thought was important, what they thought was important. And one very memorable time was when somebody started yelling at us, basically in a polite way, but yelling, (laughs) you need mathematics for this. You guys are never going to get anywhere until you start understanding the difference between uh, theory and model. And you need mathematics and stuff like that. And (laughs) we were prepared for that. And uh,
0: I think we acted on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. This has been great, Brian. Uh, thanks so much for your time uh, today and uh, good luck with uh, everything that you're doing at Stanford. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And thanks for the opportunity to have the conversation. Thank you. Thank Bye. You.